open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read from verses 9 through 11. And this is the word of the Lord. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither will the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. A lot of people wonder how these three verses got placed where they are in chapter 6 of Corinthians or just basically in, in the book where they're at. Uh, so I'm going to give a little context of um, how these verses are here, a little context of, of why Paul exhorted the church in this way. Uh, basically, the church of Corinth was a church that the apostle Paul planted on his second missionary journey. Um, Corinth was a very busy city, a prosperous city in, in Achaia, strategically located. So it was very busy with commerce. It was, uh, eventually became the capital of Achaia. Uh, when he planted it, he, he first went, he, when he crossed over to Macedonia, he was in, in Philippi, then, then uh, the church at Thessalonica, Berea, came down to Athens, and then he went to Corinth. And um, this city was very idolatrous, very idolatrous. It was host to the temple of Aphrodite, um, goddess of love. Uh, they say that there was thousand priestesses in the temple that served as really, um, they were temple prostitutes that would come down to the city and, and, uh, and they would entertain the men of Corinth and, and also traveling businessmen through there. So it was a very uh, morally corrupt city. There was a lot of moral corruption. It was known for that actually in, in uh, uh, the city's name was synonymous with moral depravity. They said that to engage in, in sexual relations with a prostitute was to Corinthianize. Imagine that. So this, this is the type of city that, uh, that um, this church was located in. It was a mixture of Jews, Greeks, uh, and Romans. Um, and through this cosmopolitan, Politan mix of people, businessmen, slaves. People were being saved. And um, Paul ministered there for about a year and a half after the church was planted as her pastor. And before leaving, he left with two friends, Priscilla and Aquila, that he met while he was there. So he left, and then uh, a little later, Apollos became uh, their second pastor. But after about two years after Paul left, and he started receiving these communications of serious problems and difficulty, sin, that were arising in the body of Christ, in the church there at Corinth. And this prompted the Apostle Paul to write this letter 
of 1 Corinthians. And he would uh, address the problems and sins that he was made aware of in the church, but he would also answer questions that they were asking. In chapter 7, verse 1, it talks about a letter that he received. He received a letter, and basically in chapter 7, as you go through the following chapters, he's answering questions from this letter that the church of Corinth sent to him. So basically, from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through to chapter 16, the apostle is helping this church understand their new life in Christ by addressing the difficulties and the questions, chapter after chapter, the sin, chapter after chapter. He is giving new revelations, because sometimes he says, this comes from me, not from the Lord, so he's giving new revelations. Sometimes he is teaching them what Christ taught uh, uh, when Christ was here ministering on the earth. But he was, he was shepherding them through, although uh, uh, from a distance, with communications back to the church. And this letter is one of those communications in which he is shepherding them. A lot of problems. But the most serious problem that Paul addresses, probably the most serious problem, is their inability to divorce themselves from their former life. Their inability to, to divorce themselves from the worldly society around them. The society that we briefly touched on. For example, in the first four chapters, he deals with the problem of division in the church. Okay? Why were they divided? They were divided because they were following after human leaders and human philosophies. And that's not far off from where we are at today. We get a lot of ideas. Human philosophies, I say public opinion, because a lot of it's public opinion. And so they were, they were divided. They were following men. Uh, they demonstrated that by saying, I'm from Paul, I'm from Apollos, I'm from uh, uh, Cephas, from Peter, Peter's group. And then the different philosophies that they would follow. Like I say, it's not much different from today. But what that was was a carryover from their former life. When they used to follow these human philosophers, these human leaders. So they would do that when they brought that into the church. First four chapters, he deals with division in the church and this. Chapter five, he talks about uh, uh, the, their failure to discipline and sin in the assembly, and they tolerated it. That also is a carryover from their former lives when they tolerated sin. They basked in their sin, and they would ignore it. In chapter 6, it was the sin of suing each other. And in the Corinthian society, as in Athens, they, the, everybody was involved in, in the um, judicial process. And they carried that into their Christian lives as well. And this is a problem throughout the letter. And the Apostle Paul even addresses it in chapter 5, in verse 6. In chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as really unleavened. He says, Do you not know that a little piece of that old lump, and that is actually what leaven was, it was from an old lump, and he's calling the church, 
introduce that into the new lump and it will permeate, it will penetrate, and, and it will contaminate the new lump. And that's what was happening. That's what was happening. That was their problem. Gravitating back to the old way of life and letting it contaminate, contaminate, contaminate their new life in Christ. And not really understanding the theological truths of their new life. The life that the gospel of God produced in them. And Paul wants to address that again in these verses. Now for a more immediate context, in, in, in chapter 6, we have a case where one believer was defrauded by another believer. And the one that was defrauded takes the, the one that defrauded him... Uh, takes him uh, before a pagan judge in a pagan court, and, and, and Paul rebukes them in this chapter. He says that, that by doing this, you have already lost. Even if you won the lawsuit, you've already lost. It's a loss for you. It's a loss for the church because it stains the testimony of the church, and it stains the testimony of Christ. He says in verse 7 of chapter 6, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So he's saying it's already a loss. Just the fact that you guys are bringing these lawsuits up before a pagan judge in a pagan court. Because it stains the testimony of the church. He says, I have a better idea. He says in verse 7, why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather suffer wrong. What is Paul saying there? He says that this is a better option. What he's saying is that why not just forgive? Why not just forgive? That is Christian testimony. That is Christian witness. He says, but no, verse eight, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Even your own brothers. And that brings us to our text. So in light of this wickedness and their tendency to act in the way that they did in their former lives, Paul wants to remind them what the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ did in their lives. Why? Because he wants to encourage them to live according to their calling. He wants to encourage them to live as by the effects of the gospel in the life of a believer, and that's the title of the message today, that they are no longer who they were, but that the gospel has changed them, and, and that's how he starts here. He says the gospel has changed you. And he says, or do you not know? He says, you guys are defrauding each other. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, and revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, don't be deceived. Paul starts here by, by pointing out out those who will not enter the kingdom of God, those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying these are unbelievers. 
These are people that have not been changed by the transforming power of the gospel. And he says, don't be deceived. And do you not know? Basically what he's, what he's saying, he, and he uses, or do you not know, he uses that phrase seven times in, in, in chapter six. He says, or do you not know? Basically what he's saying is, do not be deceived because you know. You know this is what he's saying. Don't be deceived because you know this. You know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know that the sexually immoral, that the idolatry, you know that they will not enter the kingdom of God. You know this. And one thing we need to note is that Paul here is not addressing sins. He's not addressing sins. He's addressing sinners. And, and that's very important. He's, he's addressing sinners. All of these sins that he mentions are in the form of a noun. And he's talking to the sinners. He's not talking about the sins. And that's important because he wants to communicate that it's not if you have been drunk sometime in your life. Or, or if you, um, or for example, if you stole something that you will not in, inherit the kingdom of God. He doesn't say that. He is talking about sinners because he is saying that if your life is characterized by or if the pattern of your life is these types of sins, it appears that you are not changed, you have not been changed, and that you will not enter the kingdom of God. It appears that you are not a believer. So he's talking about, he's talking to sinners. He's talking to the sinner and he says to them in verse 11, he's talking to the sinners in verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. One of the things we need to understand is he's not just taking a random list of sinners here. This was the church of Corinth. This was the church. He even mentioned some of those sins in chapter 5. In verse 11, he says, sexually immoral, the greedy, the idolater, the reveler, the drunkard, the swindler. This was the church of Corinth. This was them. And a lot of this list is us or was us. This was the church, and this may be true here. He's pointing to the church. He's saying, the sexually immoral, there you are. You were. You were an idolater. You were an adulterer. You were a homosexual. You were a drunkard. You lived. You were always drunk. You were a reviler. You were always fighting. You are a swindler. We see you in chapter 8, defrauding your brother. This is you, 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 and you. This was you, you, you and you. And what we could do now is go through this list of sins and we can, of sinners, and we can give a brief description of each one. But that's not what I want to do today. That's not my focus today. My focus today is about the transforming power of the gospel that changes lives. What life-changing effect the gospel has in the life of a believer. So I'm going to focus on verse 11. 
verse 11. We're going to have our eyes fixed on verse 11. So verse 11, after giving this list of kinds of sinners, Paul says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. He is telling them, this is not what you are now. But this is what you were. In a past time in your life, this is what you were. But now, he says, you have been changed. You've been transformed by what? By the foolish message of the cross. He talks about the foolish message of the cross in the way that he introduced it earlier in the, in the earlier chapters. He says the foolish message of the cross that is the wisdom of God and is the power of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here in verse 11, he gives some theological truths of how that transformation came about. Theological truths. And, and these verses serve as a conclusion to the discussion on lawsuits. But really, it sets up his argument for addressing every issue moving forward to the end of the book. It sets that up. Because he's basically saying, if you guys are believers, you need to live like believers. So he gives three theological truths here that are true in the life of every believer. These three theological truths that uh, were brought about by a change in their life, and everybody here, everybody in this room that is a believer, this is true of you, okay? So this, is, this, message, this message is from the Lord. This message is for each one of us, okay? Paul here knows that if the Corinthians were going to break from their former life and live a truly changed life, that they needed to understand these theological truths. They needed to understand what happened in their life. And just as they needed to know, we need to know as well. We need to know, because this is going to help us break from those habits that we have from our old life. And each one of you know what those habits are. This is going to help us change our lives in the lives that truly serve and love the Lord. That we always proclaim, oh Lord, we love you. Oh Lord, we want to serve you. Well, we need to live truly transformed lives. And these are three ways that we've been transformed. These are three ways that he is telling these believers, the church of Corinth, that they've been transformed. These are the, the three effects the gospel has in the life of a believer, in the life of every believer. Paul says, and such were some of you. And then he says, but. I love those adversatives in the Bible. I was going to say I love those butts in the Bible, but that doesn't sound very good. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, but God in his abundant mercy gave you life. But. So he says here, and such were some of you, but you were what? Washed. Here Paul is saying that Christians that believers 
listen to this, have been cleansed of all their sins. Imagine saying that to the Corinthians. Imagine that saying that to the Americans. Imagine how that truth impacted their feeling of guilt for their sins past. These people were unrighteous, doers of wrong, basically is what it means there. They were, they were sexually immoral, idolaters, they were adulterers, they were homosexual, they were thieves, they were greedy, they were drunkards, they were revilers, they were swindlers. They were all these things. They all were these things. And Paul says, you have been washed. And in the Greek, that word means a complete washing. A complete washing. A thorough cleansing. Not just a foot washing, but a complete cleaning. A complete cleaning, as, as our Lord alludes to in, in John 13. Not just a foot wash. You were cleaned. Totally cleaned. Paul's letting them know that their condition, that even though their sin contaminated them, God purified them. God washed them. God cleaned them. And we see that concept throughout, throughout Scripture. In, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, very familiar text. He says, now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be what? White as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be come like wool. Wow. In Psalm 51, 7, David says that wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Whiter than snow. That's white. That's washed. In Titus 3, 5, it says he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is the effect of the gospel. The washing of regeneration and the renewal of his Holy Spirit. And the idea here is even though we have sinful, stained souls, God gives us what? A new, clean life in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Wow. Paul wants them to understand this, but you know what? God wants us to understand this too. He wants us to understand this in order that what does this do? How does this impact our lives? It changes the way we live. The truth is, when you realize that something is washed, something is totally clean, it motivates you to keep it clean. It motivates you to keep it clean. I remember when I was eight years old. When I was eight years old, I did my first Holy Communion. And... Um, 
on Saturday, I would go to church, go to the church, and, and I would confess, pour out all the sins of my riotous living when I was eight years old. I pour out all of my sins to the priest. Then I would go and do my 148 Hail Marys, 298 Our Fathers. That made me clean enough to take the host of communion on Sunday. But boy, after I did that on Sunday, you know what I felt? As a little kid, I felt clean. I felt that I fulfilled my obligation to God, but I felt clean. I, I, you know, I felt that God was pleased and I wanted to stay that way. I wanted to keep that standing with God. I confessed all my sins. I did my penance. I'm clean. Now I can't sin. And my sins were I laughed or talked in church and I did them. That lasted up until I got home from church and then... Back to my riotous living at eight years old. But that's what Paul wanted to communicate to them. To get them to understand that he is saying, you're clean. You're spotless. You've been washed by Jesus Christ himself. Now go out and live that way. Let's look at how Peter puts it in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter... Chapter 1, verse 3, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promise so that through them that we may what? Become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption, the filth, that is in the world because of the sinful desires. For this reason, we make every effort to supplement your faith. Make every effort to supplement your faith, to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make every effort to supplement your faith with what? With virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. He says that, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Here. For if these qualities are yours, are increasing, so they're ours and they're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and infruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says something incredible here. Then it says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Wow. What he is saying here is, is, after listing all of these qualities of Christian life, he says these qualities are ours and they are increasing and they keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying that, that, that we need to remember 
we, he, he says that to them, remember that you have been completely cleansed from, from your former sins, and doing so, it motivates you to cultivate these virtues in your life. Because where it says here that you are nearsighted and you're blind, you're forgetting what happened. So if we continue to remember that we've been cleansed from our former life, we are adding virtue. We continue to live a life that glorifies God day in and day out. And we add this self-control, steadfastness, the godliness, the brotherly affection, the affections with love. All of those qualities because God is transforming us, because he has already washed us. So this is a complete divine cleansing that causes every sin, that, that cleanses every sin. It doesn't matter how bad the sin was, it doesn't matter how many sins. In Colossians 2.13, Colossians 2.13, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. All our trespasses. In 1 John 1, 7, it says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from how many sins? All sins. And he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. In the same 1 John 1, 9. Complete cleansing. So Paul's argument to the Corinthians is, and, and to us really, is you've been cleansed. And basically what he's saying is, now act like it. Act like it. And the fact is because God cleansed you, you can now live a pure life in a dirty world. Paul's saying, you are now clean, now live that way. This is one of the effects of the gospel in the life of a believer. We've been washed. But that's not all. He also says, but you have been sanctified. But you were sanctified. You were sanctified. In this, Paul's saying that the Christian has been set apart as the holy people of God. The word sanctified comes from the word holy, and uh, as a verb, it has two common uh, meanings, two common meanings. In, in chapter 7, he also talks about a matrimonial sanctification, but we're, we're talking about these two meanings here. It is the process, a process of eliminating things that are unholy in your life. Practically, practi practically becoming more and more like Christ. It's a process. That's one of the meanings. The other meaning is it could mean that you're set apart for a sacred purpose. Set apart for a sacred purpose. And this is the case uh, that Paul is talking about here. In this case, it is that God set them apart and he sets us apart for his purposes. He consecrates us is what we could say. God set us apart for sacred purposes. Set us apart for a specific purpose. Okay, this is positional. We, theologians call it positional sanctification. 
as opposed to progressive sanctification. Positionally, we are saints. We're set apart for holy purposes. This is a done deal, something that happens to us at salvation, something that happened in the past, a one-time event. We've been sanctified, okay? Progressive sanctification is happening now. It's happening today in our, in our lives. It's an ongoing event. It's an ongoing transformation of us. Positional sanctification is like the base and, and, and progressive sanctification is, is like the fruit. They're different, but you can't separate them because you can't have progressive sanctification without us having been positionally sanctified. Okay? So positional sanctification always leads to progressive sanctification. And Paul here is saying that those people have been set apart in a very special way through the gospel of Jesus Christ for God. They've been set apart. God wants them to understand that, that yes, positionally speaking, they are in Christ. They are saints. Wow. That's how he introduces them in chapter 1, verse 2. He says... To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he's addressing them as saints. These Corinthians, they are saints. He addresses us as saints. Imagine if he wrote a letter to the church at Tri-City and says, saints, that's our calling. We're set apart to be saints. He calls his people saints. Wow. Why? Because we are in Christ. Paul and God views the believer as a saint. Paul points to, to the position in Christ, in them, yours, to affect a change, just like he did when he talked about them being washed. They have been sanctified. They have been set apart for God's purposes. They weren't saved just for themselves. We're not saved just for us. We're saved for God's purposes. In Ephesians, and everybody knows Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, that we're by grace we are saved through faith. I'm going to read it. Ephesians 2 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. Praise God. Praise God. But then he says, For you are his workmanship. That word is derived from a masterpiece. You're God's masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For yourself? No, for good works. Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God had this all planned. He cleansed us. He sanctified, set us apart. He has these works and he wants us to work in them. 
The purpose of salvation is so that we give honor and glory to Christ through a changed life. And the question, is that me? Is that us? Do we do that? Look at Titus. Titus again. Titus chapter 2. In verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. So what does the grace of God teach us? That we can live any way we want? No. No. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope of the appearance of the glory of uh, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are waiting for him. Those who have this hope, as we know it says in 1 John, purify themselves, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlaw- un, uh, uh, lawlessness and to purify for himself people, for his own possession, people, what kind of people? People who are zealous for good works. That's us. We're not saved by our works, but we're called to be different. God saved you for his purposes, and that's what Paul wants these believers to understand. He wants them to realize you have been consecrated, you have been set apart, that you should have a, that should have a radical impact in your life. A radical impact. We've been made holy. God wants us to live up to our status in Christ, to his glory. We've been saved from our sin. Sin no longer reigns in our mortal bodies that we have to obey it in its lust. We, we are no longer a slave of sin. We've been made holy. Paul says, what? Now live that way. That's what he's telling these Corinthians. He stops in the middle of this book and says, wow, i got to remind them who they are because all of these things that they're coming up with, all of these problems, all these difficulties, all these sins are because they don't understand what God requires of them. And if we have been saved by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the foolishness of the cross, which is the power of God's salvation, the effect is that God has washed us. He has cleansed us from our sins, from contamination sins. He has sanctified us for his purposes. And one more thing. One more thing that Paul mentions here. He's forgiven us from the penalty of sin. Paul says here, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified. Wow. What does justified mean? It means we're declared righteous. That's the opposite of condemned. We're justified. This is in, in John three seventeen. Jesus was not sent into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world's already condemned. The gavels. Condemned, guilty. World's condemned. Justification means that we are declared righteous. It's a legal term. Where the unjust sinner is made right in the sight of a holy God. 
the holy God of the universe views us as made right because our penalty was satisfied. Propitiation. It's that the sinner stands condemned before a holy judge of the universe. Imagine that. The sinner stands condemned before the holy judge of the universe. What that sinner needs is a righteousness that he doesn't have. A righteousness that we don't have. But this lack of righteousness is supplied by Christ to every believing sinner apart from any merit of his own, apart from anything he could do. This righteousness is provided to every believer. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.8 says that God sent his son to come and pay the penalty of that death. His death is my death. Christ's death is my death. And because of that, Romans 8, 1 says there is how much condemnation? No condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Not one, no condemnation. The debt was paid by Jesus himself. Everyone knows 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It says, for our sake... He made him to be sin. For our sake, he declared Christ guilty. Christ is guilty. He who knew no sin, so that in him we might be declared unguilty or not guilty. So that in him we might become the righteousness that God requires, the righteousness of God. Wow. Christ paid our debt and cleared us from all the penalties of sin. The Apostle Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were, but you were sanctified, but you were justified, and all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. By the authority of of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God planned this washing, this sanctification, this justification. The Son authorized this washing, this, this sanctification, this justification, and the Spirit applied it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Incredible. So Paul's reminding these Corinthians that God has indeed cleansed them. And he reminds them by, of the tremendous effect that the gospel has in the life of every believer. But God also wants everyone in this room today to realize the same thing. We need to realize that washing that we received. We need to realize that we've been set apart for, for a specific person, purpose, and we need to realize that there's no condemnation. We need to live in that glory. 
He wants you to know that you're different. That if you repented from your sinful and self-righteous, self-righteousness, and you're depending on Christ, if you're depending on his death, his burial, and his resurrection for your righteousness before God, if that's the case, you've been cleansed. You've been washed from the condemnation of sin. You've been set apart for God's purposes, and you've been justified, counted righteous before a holy God, and you are a saint. And God says, now go live like one. Father God in heaven, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. It pierces our hearts, Lord. But we know, Lord, that you do that out of love. You love us. You have given us the, the, your word through inspiration, and you have illumined it, Lord, that we can understand it. We thank you that you talk to us today through your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us understand that you paid it all. Nothing that we did. And that you want us to live for your glory. Help us to understand that washing. Help us to understand that sanctification. Help us to understand, Lord, the justification. Theological terms that basically say that you love us. And you want us to glorify you. I thank you, Lord, that we can get together here and worship you in this way. That we can respond to your word in a positive manner, Lord, even though it brings conviction, it brings joy, because we're your bride and you have given us the power to live this way by the resident Holy Spirit in our hearts. We pray today, Lord, that you would help us to... Uh, Glorify you in all things. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.